exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. We ended last time with Hamlet really pushing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to be straight with him. They were sent for. That their visit to Elsinore is not just two friends eager to catch up with him. Hamlet played his trump card, insisting by their history together, their long-standing friendship and the very fellowship between them, that they should tell the truth. It's real that Shakespeare keeps the tension going just a hair longer, giving Rosencrantz a little aside to Guildenstern, and he says, What say you? At the same time, Hamlet has an aside to us as he watches them. Nay, then, I have an eye of you. He's watching their little exchange, as presumably they have a quick debate as to whether or not they should tell their quote-unquote friend the truth. Hamlet has a final push, saying, If you love me, Hold not off. If you really are my friends, just tell me. Don't hold back. And surprise, surprise, they crack. It's Guildenstern who finally tells the sheepish truth. My lord, we were sent for. Hamlet knows full well, and he's not surprised. Not only that, he's eager to explain to them why they were sent for, and give them a sense of what's going on with him. I will tell you why. So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen moat no feather. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave, o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with gold and fire, why, it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work as a man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty! In form and moving, how express and admirable! In action, how like an angel! In apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals! And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. It must be a very curious thing to be friends with Hamlet. Was he always this brilliant, this creative with language? It's no surprise that a mind capable of thinking like this can run rings around these two mere mortals. The speech in itself is beautiful and has a great many famous lines and phrases to unpack. Hamlet begins as soon as Guildenstern says that yes, they were sent for. He will tell them why they're here. And so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen molt no feather. In other words, his telling them immediately will prevent them from having to spend any more time trying to discover what's wrong with him. And this way, they can preserve their little secret with the king and queen without any loss, not even a feather. And so he goes into an extended description of his melancholy. Hamlet, the romantic figure, Hamlet, the brooding, lovesick teenager, Hamlet, the loner, all dressed in black. These are all famous ways in which we are conditioned to think of the prince, 
and this speech certainly feeds these images. He explains, I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. Recently, and for reasons he doesn't quite know, he says, he has lost all happiness. Immediately, I think we are invited to question this. Since the beginning of the play, Shakespeare has been laying out a pretty detailed picture of why Hamlet might be unhappy in the world. Unlike Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, who starts his play saying, In sooth, I know not why I am so sad, Hamlet does know. Is he asking us, who know also, to listen to all of this with maybe just a pinch of salt? It's a magnificent collection of images, but how sincere is he being? He continues that he has lost all custom of exercise. Now, who among us hasn't found ourselves without the desire for any physical activity when we are sad? Earlier in the play, there's been mention of tennis and, of course, fencing, to which we will return later. But Hamlet's saying that he stopped all of it. He might mean exercise even in a broader sense, that he stopped doing any of his normal activities. Either way, it's a recognisable symptom of sadness or indeed depression. He continues that things are so bad and go so heavily with his disposition that the world and the sky above it feel just horrible. This goodly frame, the earth, seems like a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave, o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. This is dramatic and poetic enough, but it's far more interesting if we consider the theatre in which Shakespeare's plays were performed. If Hamlet refers to the earth on which he stands and calls it a goodly frame, it's easy enough to infer that he, or the actor playing him, could be talking about the stage, the platform or frame on which he's standing. Since the audience would have been around it on nearly all sides, it can very easily be imagined as a promontory, a cliff, jutting out into this sea of audience members. If it's sterile, it is perhaps a bare stage, or barren or fruitless, like so much of Hamlet's endeavours are feeling. This most excellent canopy, the air, can of course be the sky overhead. In an open-air theatre, this is a very obvious leap to make, and perhaps the golden fire in the sky that he's talking about could be the sun, maybe the stars, and so on. But Hamlet gets more specific, insisting, look you, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Shakespeare and his fellow company members were rightly proud of their beautiful theatre, which they had built from the wood of the theatre they had previously occupied. There's a brilliant story that I'll put on the website about them carting the wood directly across the Thames to Bankside. There's every reason to believe that the canopy that partially covered the stage was indeed painted with gold, and said canopy was usually referred to as the heavens. No more than the chorus in Henry V referring to this wooden O, Hamlet here is surely playing with the theatrical space. Indeed, his next line is a jokey dig at the audience themselves, as he claims that his experience of the world is no more than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. The groundlings in the theatre would certainly have been close enough for Hamlet or the actor playing him to smell their breath. I'm not sure how much this whole section needs to be played for laughs or, you know, for a nudge-nudge, wink-wink, look where we are, but it's certainly fun to imagine the performer involving the theatre in his description of the world and the heavens above it. Hamlet isn't finished yet. Having described how he sees the world, he moves on to man's place in it. 
what a piece of work is a man. Hamlet considers man to be a great creation. The phrase certainly entered into common parlance, but quickly slid into negative connotations. Calling somebody a piece of work isn't really a good thing anymore. There's a fun line from, would you believe, the manuscripts of the Duke of Portland, who wrote, I believe your lordship will have nothing to do with him, he being a whining, dangerous piece of work and not to be trusted. Hamlet describes man rather more positively. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. Man thinks nobly, has infinite abilities or potential, is shaped and moves beautifully, can do good and can understand magnificently, is the most beautiful thing in the world and the most perfect of all living creatures. To be the paragon of something is to be the supreme example of it. Anyone who needs to argue for Shakespeare as a humanist is likely to quote this speech sooner or later. But Hamlet isn't feeling it. For all of man's greatness, mankind is nothing. He says, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Here Shakespeare conflates many images at once. Christian teaching insists that man is made of dust, and unto dust he shall return. Hamlet's mother already told him to stop looking for his father in the dust, and now Hamlet is considering man as the quintessence, the most perfect example of what dust can become. But for all that, he's still dust, and therefore doomed to die. The quintessence is also the fifth element, after air, earth, fire and water, that alchemists consider the most perfect substance. There's a great deal to this image all vibrating within it. The feeling is that man is a magnificent achievement, but ultimately futile. From the first soliloquy, we already had Hamlet saying, how weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world, and now man is a quintessence of dust. Whether he's just playing for the lad's benefit, incorporating all these little references to the theatre like the genius he is, or Shakespeare is, or whether this is entirely sincere melancholy, he reaches a very clear point. Man delights not me. I hate people, basically. We're going to leave Hamlet in his gloom right here, and save the news that Guildenstern and Rosencrantz have for him for next time. Thank you very much for tuning in, and feel free to visit the show notes page on thehamletpodcast.com for an image of Shakespeare's theatre. It's a nice cutaway, so you'll be able to see and get a sense of the space and how this week's text might work and refer to it. You can check it out, and I'll speak to you next time.